namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami. I'd like to welcome everyone this uh, Sunday afternoon. Uh, Lumpur Sumedha is away in uh, Italy at the moment, and uh, I think uh, beginning at the end of the week he'll also be doing a two week retreat beginning at the, uh, the retreat center here. So uh, I'll be joining you these Sunday afternoons for the next, uh, this week and the next two following. Um, so the theme for today's talk is that of forgiveness and uh, this is a, a perennially useful theme and uh, when the, this came up as a, suggested as a topic I, I, uh, I uh, felt it would be uh, a very helpful, very useful, interesting to explore. Uh, our culture uh, in, here in the West is um, has a quite a long history of uh, the culture of vengeance and uh, the uh, sort of Judeo-Christian conditioning, but also it's not totally isolated to Western Europe. <laughs> but uh, in uh, in Asia, also other parts of the world, uh, uh, most places where human beings have lived, there has been that that instinct to uh, to take our revenge when we experience some kind of hurt, when we are, are um, damaged or offended or, or wounded, that uh, there's a, uh, an instinctual uh, reactive uh, habit, uh, a pattern uh, that we want to, to cause the other, uh, that which has hurt us, we want to cause that that being, those, those beings harm in return. We want our, our, uh, our vengeance. And that's a, a, a that's a strong conditioning, particularly if there is a religious religious backup to it. Uh, is often um, quoted that the, the uh, Old Testament kind of sentiment of vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I did look that up actually, but it doesn't seem as though it does actually say that in the Bible. It's one of those uh, frequent misquotings, <laughs> but it's there in our culture anyway. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So that the the feeling is that. Um, there's some kind of official sanction to to punish, or to that the, if someone causes us harm, they they should suffer in return. And the, uh, the there's a um, also a sense within that of a feeling of if we've been hurt or something has been something bad has been done to us, it's almost like our duty to hang on to that. That it's uh, uh, in a way the the basis of of um, honor killings, as they they are called, quote unquote, honor killings, um, is that the the family honor has been has been defiled, or the the spiritual honor has been defiled, and the only way that that can be restored is by by uh, killing the offender. And uh, that seeming uh, it can seem to be the right thing to do. That if you just um, forgive and forget, just sort of drop something that. You're not. Uh, you're not doing your duty. You're not. You're not um, fulfilling what should be done. So that's a, a powerful force in our in our thinking, isn't it? That, uh, that there can be that sense of well, I would like to drop it, but I shouldn't because it's my duty to hang on to this and carry this resentment, this grudge around with me for forever. Certainly, uh, th- those of us here who've had that kind of a uh, of a feeling. Um, it can be perplexing because maybe something in us wants to just drop the issue or not make anything of it, but then there's a sense of well, no, it uh, it should be, uh, it shouldn't just be dropped. There should be uh, due punishment, should be meted out. Uh, there, there's something, uh, revenge should be should be taken somewhere or another. Well, one of the things that um, is interesting to to reflect on in this respect is that the Buddha's teachings on on karma and uh, and vipaka action and its results and um, the feeling that well wrongdoers should be punished uh, or that those who have caused harm or those who have have um, 
behaves in an immoral or harmful, hurtful way, that they should be punished. And uh, the, um, also people will observe, that if you say, well, we all are the recipients of our actions, that people can say, even in the time of the Buddha, they say, well, it can, you can see people who seem to misbehave really badly, that behave in terrible ways, but yet they seem to get away with everything. They get away with murder, and uh, the uh, most outrageous robbers and politicians who um, rip everybody off left and right, they seem to be enjoying a very comfortable life, thank you very much. <laughs> and sometimes good people who seem to live very virtuous and, and beneficial, wholesome lives uh, uh, seem to be... Uh, uh, suffering a lot, or, or, or life is not automatically easier or better for them on, a, on account of that. So, where's the punishment, or how, how come they, they can act in such an unwholesome way and not, uh, seemingly not receive the, re the result of it? So, uh, it's interesting that in the Majima Nikaya, the middle length discourses, there are two discourses there side by side, uh, Sutta 135 and 136. And in the 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 first one, the the, um, the shorter discourse on the uh, uh, on ac on the teachings on action, the the Buddha describes how for every kind of action, every kind of disposition, there is a, a matching, uh, a sort of corresponding result. So that if you're um, if you're very you know, generous or moral, then you'll be reborn looking beautiful. Or if you are one who um, are, are harmless, then you'll you'll uh, be gifted with a, a, a the result. The result of that will be a, a long life. And so he goes through many different instances of, of pointing out the the matching uh, consequence to the particular action. And uh, and then in the next discourse, the the longer discourse on the on the um, the nature of action, then the, he points out that you can't uh, you you can't predict. You can't exactly say when and how and where the results of a particular action will ripen. And it, the same issue comes up, uh, as I recall it in that very discourse, uh, that people who seem to live an immoral life, how come they, they don't have some kind of immediate negative response? How come uh, they seem to, to be uh, going sort of, quote, unpunished? Or how come uh, there are good people that have uh, terrible things happen to them? And uh, the Buddha points out that the, the ripening of action, the vipaka, the karmic result that comes from action, you can't predict exactly how, when, and where it's going to ripen. But there are uh, inexorable laws that, that are functioning together. So we have this mixture of, of, um, of different influences, both that there is uh, the actions that are taken and the results that come from them, but you can't predict when and where uh, that result will come. Now for most people, uh, they want to see more immediate <laughs> results. If someone's broken into your house, you want to see them <laughs> taken to court, and, and you want to see them, them charged, and, and uh, uh, see that justice is done. Uh, you know, we, are, uh, we are eager to see much more of a, of a direct acting out of, of justice. Um, to see that, uh, you can say, well, maybe in a future life this person's going to lose all their belongings, but <laughs> I've just lost mine, thank you very much. So. I'd rather like to see a, a more of a, a, an apparent result sooner rather than later. And that's, that's very natural to us. It's the most ordinary and natural thing. But uh, the, um, the, the Buddha did point out these, uh, these laws, the laws of karma and their result, and I feel these are very helpful to reflect on when we're thinking in terms of forgiveness and that in us which doesn't want to forgive, that which wants to carry around resentment, negativity, that uh, to really bear in mind the Buddha's teachings about how actions do inevitably and inexorably carry their results with them, but uh, simply we can't predict as uh, exactly how, where, and when they will ripen. Now, when we do carry around that kind of resentment, that sort of negativity, we want someone to to be punished. The um, uh, there's a uh, In the kind of Old Testament biblical uh, model of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, um, what what we find within ourselves when we carry that kind of resentment around, like I'm never going to forgive. You've done you've done me wrong, and I'm going to I'm going to carry this uh, aversion, this grudge, this resentment around with me till the end of my days, and I'm never going to let you forget it. Now, what we don't realize when we're doing that is how much we harm ourselves. 
And maybe the other person did do wrong. Maybe they did really badly abuse us or rob us or harm us in some kind of uh, irreparable way. Maybe we are scarred for life. But what we can miss is how we are harming ourselves in the process. And it just so happened, I'm not sure uh, whether this person who sent me this message knew that I was going to be giving a talk about forgiveness this weekend. But this, this um, arrived a couple of days ago through the email, um, seemingly quite by chance. And uh, it's from someone called Petar Lachik. Um, and it's a, it's a story that relates to this. So I thought I'd read it out to you all. Once upon a time, a man was walking along a path. He happened to catch his foot on a lump of dried mud and tripped and hit his nose on the ground. His nose bled and he felt a sudden rage at the earth that had hurt him. He stood up and shook his fist at it. What have I ever done to you, he shouted. You stub my toes, you make me dirty, you make me tired walking up your hills, and you make me fall going down them. I've had it with you. He stomped off home and got his shovel. I'll show you, he growled. I'll shovel you away if it takes me the rest of my life. The man viciously jabbed his spade into the ground, scooped up some dirt and flung it into the air. That's one shovelful gone, and here goes another, he grunted to himself as he tossed up a second scoop of dirt. He worked and worked, digging furiously, trying to shovel the earth away once and for all. All afternoon he dug up dirt and threw it into the air, paying no attention to anything else. He never noticed that he was digging himself into a hole. <laughs> you could see that coming, couldn't you? Right? He, he never noticed that he was flinging the dirt into the air and onto himself. In his fury he never noticed the weight pressing down on him or the space growing narrower and narrower. Even when he could no longer move in his mind, he was still digging, still shoveling the earth into space. He never noticed when he finally became part of the earth that he felt injured by. And the earth never took any notice of him at all. <laughs> so it's a moral tale. <laughs> but isn't it curious how we, we can dig ourselves into those holes? And we might hear that story and go, ha, 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 ha. And then, meanwhile, forgetting <laughs> the last time that we did that. So, yeah, but I mean, he really did do me wrong, and I am going to... It's my duty to carry that around and resent and, and uh, begrudge him that behavior forever. So in terms of, of considering forgiveness, um, it's not necessarily overlooking the harm that's been done. Um, there's a, a, a usefulness, a necessity to acknowledge that but then it's also a consideration of, well, that having been done, what is a way forward that can help us all? What's something that's going to be of benefit both to myself, so I don't have to carry around this burden of, of aversion, hatred, negativity, and what's going to help the other person as well, or the other, the other people? So I was reflecting on this, um, this theme, and I was reminded of a, um, a story I heard about uh, uh, someone who became quite well known in, uh, in this country back in the, the 60s and 70s. And uh, there was a, someone who was a monk in this community who used to work with this fellow up in, in Edinburgh. His name was Jimmy Boyle. Some of you might have heard of him. And uh, he was, uh, in a, um, he was a, a, a gang fighter in Glasgow in, back in the 1960s. And he was uh, jailed in 1967 for murder. He was one the, I think he was the very first person to be uh, convicted of murder after the death penalty was scrapped in Britain. And so he was locked up. And for the first, uh, for the first 10 years of his, his life in jail, he, he fought the system tooth and nail and was a completely incorrigible prisoner. And uh, this was the first time that the, the prison system didn't have the threat of the death penalty. And so they were struggling to find ways to, to contain people who uh, ostensibly were never going to be out of jail in the, for the rest of their lives, and therefore they seemingly didn't have much to lose. So Jimmy Boyle was a, was a famously contentious and uh, difficult uh, argumentative prisoner who picked fights with the, the guards and the, the system as and where, where he could, whenever he could. And um, the, the reason why this... The, um, this uh, the monk who had been uh, in our community had got to know him was because uh, eventually Jimmy Boyle was released from jail. And the way it came about was that uh, after uh, the struggling in the prison system for, for many years, they decided 
to try an, an experiment with um, uh, uh, humanizing the way of relating to the, to the prisoners. And uh, I believe it's in Jimmy Boyle's book uh, called A Sense of Freedom that he wrote in... He was jailed in 67, and then uh, I think he wrote the book uh, A Sense of Freedom in, in 77. And he, des uh, he describes how what they did was that within Barlini Prison in Glasgow, they created a, a special unit, a, a sort of a, a super tightly contained unit within the prison. But inside that unit, then things were quite liberal, quite, uh, quite open. Um, rather than the, the previous uh, procedures they'd had of pretty much locking people up, even putting uh, prisoners in cages, the, the famous, infamous cages, uh, locking people up in solitary confinement and, and very vicious punishments. And Jimmy Boyle described how this, this, the great turning point came for him, where one day in a special unit, a parcel had come for him uh, from some well-wisher outside. And then the guard gave him a pair of scissors, and uh, and <coughs> as he describes, says, you know that's a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he because uh, that up to that point, then any kind of sharp object, anything that could remotely be used um, to harm others, was was completely out of bounds. He was never going to be allowed near. And here was a guard actually handing him a weapon. And he's he's looking the the guard in the eye and says, you know, you you realize what you're doing? You're actually putting a weapon into my hand. And then the guard stayed in the, the same position and still holding the scissors out, scissors out to him and gave him this look which said, yes, I know, I'm handing you a weapon and I'm trusting that you're not going to stick me with it. And it was so, uh, had such a powerful impact, it was so surprising and so uh, uh, powerful a message to him that someone was actually treating him as a responsible human being for a change. That to his amazement he took the scissors and opened the parcel with them and gave the scissors back. <laughs> didn't attack the guard and uh, and that was a turning point uh, in his whole life and eventually because he was able to really turn his his life and his way of relating around eventually he got released from jail and he started up this uh, a, char a prison reform charity called uh, Inside Out I think it's, it was called and that this uh, this fellow um, who eventually became a monk in this community uh, Tansobano was uh, working with him as a as a uh, a, f a volunteer when uh, when they had the programs going in, in Edinburgh. Well, that really struck me that that story uh, and uh, the experience, because also Tansobano had uh, known this fellow and worked with him and and uh, had ha you know, hands-on experience of of uh, this man and his life story. So here was someone who the society at first was not going to uh, forgive in any way. He was a, a murderer. He was to be punished. He was to be uh, contained under duress at, at all costs, uh, but no matter how hard they tried to 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 hold him down, that all they met with was resistance and negativity. But the turning point came when he was trusted. They weren't neglecting the fact that that he was uh, a convicted uh, uh, killer. But they're also recognizing, along with having taken somebody's life or having been accused of that or having been convicted of that, uh, you're also a human being and therefore uh, worthy of respect. There's something in you that is not violent. There's something in you that is responsible, that is responsive. And so it was that gesture of trust that was able to contact that point of humanity within him and then turn his, his life around and then also cause his life to become a, a, a source of great benefit for many other people for, um, for many years since that time. And he, he became a sculptor. Uh, and uh, he put a, a lot of his, his energy went into his artwork. And um, I think he actually eventually married his barrister. The, <laughs> the, the, the barrister who got him out of, the woman barrister who got him out of jail, finally they ended up getting married together. It's another story. <laughs> So with the um, with this theme, it's um, it's important to I feel it's important to understand that we're not just with forgiveness. We're not just glossing over the harm that's been done. You're not you're not pretending that that's not there or that it doesn't matter. But we're looking at um, what is the most skillful way of, of handling that. Oh, there's a, a a chant that we do here. Um, 
pretty much on a daily basis called the sharing of blessings and probably many of you are familiar with that and in the the words of this chant uh, in the English uh, goes um, you know those who are friendly indifferent or hostile may all beings receive the blessings of my life may they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless um, you're sharing your blessings consciously with the highest gods, the evil forces, um, those who are friendly, indifferent, and hostile. Now, on a, again, on that instinctual level, if someone, we, we call them evil, you know, to use, uh, some people don't even like to use such a word, or some people that are hostile to us, why would we want to share the blessings of our life? Why do we want to share our good karma, limited amounts of good karma that we have? Why would we want to share it with people that are, are doing, have done us harm or who are hostile, people who are, make our life more difficult. Why would we want to, um, in a sense, offer up the goodness of our lives to them? And something in us feels that, well, if you're being friendly towards those who are hostile or you're, or you're being friendly towards the, the evildoers, the, those who are destructive or cruel, you are condoning their actions. They should be punished. <laughs> they should be locked up, put them in the cages punish them, off with their heads. Uh, so uh, there can be that feeling of, why on earth would you want to wish them well in the, if, they, if they're so harmful? But to me, that, this is, uh, and it was particularly striking after we started to do this chant in English. Uh, we had not done it for many years in the Pali, but not being quite such expert Pali scholars as some. <laughs> it was only when we started to recite it in English that the meaning really hit home. To, to consciously share the goodness of your life with those who wish you harm. Isn't that strange? Isn't that amazing? And the, what uh, seems uh, so powerful and so helpful to me is that you're recognizing, yes, this person's actions are harmful, they're painful, but more negativity, more hatred is only going to make things worse. And similarly, just because I have, uh, I have love for you just because I uh, respect your, your, uh, your nature as a living being doesn't mean to say that I approve of all of your actions. Right? And that's the, it's, it's very easy to get those things mushed together. They, they get conflated very easily, don't they? Because we might feel if someone uh, objects to our actions... Or, or criticizes our actions, they're criticizing us, they hate us. You know, if you don't approve of what I do, then you must hate me, or you must feel badly towards me. But I feel in terms of practicing Dhamma, it's, it's most important to, to realize that those are two different things, that we can have complete loving-kindness and respect and forgiveness. We can cultivate those qualities towards another being, but yet heartily disapprove of their actions. They're not the same thing. That just because uh, I share the goodness of my life with you doesn't mean to say I, I'm glad of what you do. Just, mean, just because uh, I disapprove of what you do doesn't mean to say I hate you or feel negativity towards you. So I feel this is an extraordinarily important principle uh, to, uh, to bring into our culture, something that, that comes from Buddha Dhamma that's really very, very helpful. And to be clear within ourselves that we can do that. We have that capacity to... Um, to wish well to the, even those who do us harm because that quality of wishing well is recognizing our common uh, humanity, our, our common nature as living beings and recognizing that if I carry around resentment, re uh, if I carry around negativity, that only creates greater division, greater uh, disharmony, greater discord and therefore sows the seeds of greater suffering in the future. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this, this is, a, I feel, something that's really worthy of contemplation. And it happens so many times during the course of a day where we, we uh, think of somebody in our family or someone that we work with or someone in the government or some figure around the world and we, we look at their actions and then we think, I hate that person or I can't stand that person or that's really, that's really upsetting or I feel you know, uh, a sense of negativity. And just to take the trouble to, to notice that, to see that reaction and, and to consider, well, wait a minute, I disapprove of their actions or their actions seem harmful or destructive. That's not a cause for me to cultivate negativity and aversion towards the other person. To take that moment to, 
to sort of reconsider our approach. Our, one of the, um, the, the, the things that um, is similarly an important principle, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this an occasion to put down the Judeo-Christian model, but in <laughs> um, one of the most important things in Buddha Dhamma is there's no concept of an absolute evil that uh, the Buddha talks in terms of, uh, of uh, wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. Um, uh, but there's no such thing as a, in, in Buddhist psychology, in Buddhist teachings, as an, as an absolute evil. And, that, and this is, again, a, a very helpful uh, principle to, to digest in terms of, of cultivating forgiveness and a, a quality of, um, say, uh, compassion or loving kindness towards other beings. Say, for example, there's a, um, there's a very interesting discourse, uh, again in the middle-length discourses, um, called the Rebuke to Mara. And this is an encounter between Mahamogalana, who was the Buddha's second disciple, one who was most gifted with psychic powers, and Mara. Uh, and in, in Buddhist mythology, as most of you probably know, Mara is the, the Lucifer figure. He's the, the, the Satan, the Lord of Illusion, the embodiment of, of all unwholesomeness in, in the Buddhist mythology. So you have this encounter between uh, uh, Mahamogalana, who's the Arahant, enlightened disciple of the Buddha, and, uh, and Mara. And Mara's trying to, to cause Mahamogalana trouble and uh, uh, causes this, this physical discomfort. And, and, uh, and Mogalana immediately recognizes that it's Mara who's, who's trying to get at him and say, I know you, Mara. You can <laughs> don't pretend that you're not there. I know it's you. And finally, Mara appears and they have this dialogue together. And Mogalana uh, uh, tells him, you know, in a past life, uh, I was a Mara too. And uh, I was, uh, my name was Dusi, the Mara Dusi. And uh, in that lifetime, I had a sister who was called Kali, and she had a son, and that was you. <laughs> so I used to be your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really extraordinary uh, dialogue. So here in this, uh, in this sutta, you have... Here's the Buddha's second disciple, an arahant, one of the great saints of, uh, of the Buddhist tradition. And he used to be Satan in a, pre- in a previous life. He's the embodiment of evil in one life. And then, obviously, a few lifetimes later, <laughs> he'd uh, pulled himself out of that uh, extraordinarily um, dark uh, pattern of living and, uh, and, uh, and thinking and relating and to the point where he had reached full enlightenment and was uh, uh, full the development to whereby he had the good karma to be born in the, in the lifetime of, of Gautama Buddha and to become his his second disciple. And now, mythologically, that's pretty amazing to me. You think, if you can imagine the amount of bad karma you create being the embodiment of evil in the universe, that's a lot of bad karma, right? <laughs> being Satan, you think, well, that's pretty irreparable. <laughs> But you know, you might think, well, this is all just fairy tales and mythology. But it's, uh, mythology has its purposes and its and its power. And to me, that just having the story where someone who had been the embodiment of unskillfulness and evil in the in the world could rise up out of that, could evolve out of that extraordinarily dark and negative state, and uh, and then in a future lifetime to be fully enlightened, totally liberated, to become an arahant. So what that points to, at least on a mythological level, is that no wrongdoing is irreparable. No, no being is unredeemable. And so uh, even if your problem is not with forgiving others, but forgiving yourself, <gasps> maybe we, we're, it's much easier to forgive the wrongdoings of others, but our own shortcomings are the, are the ones that uh, we're most critical and negative about. Um, uh, it's, this is a really helpful model, I find, that, uh, to consider that no matter how badly we've, uh, we've done things wrong, no matter how stupid our mistakes were, no matter how uh, painful the, the effects of the faults that we have carried out or, or that which has been done to us or that which we've experienced or that which we see in the world, the harm on a, on a, uh, on a family level, on a, a, um, a local level, on a national level, you know, the, the harm that's done by oppressive governments by the ecological degradation because of various uh, aspects of human greed or or whether it's very very local 
that uh, to see that in terms of the the Buddhist understanding of things, no wrongdoing is is irreparable, is unredeemable. And again, I feel this is a really important and helpful model, particularly when if if we are uh, one who suffers a lot from guilt or from feelings of um, imperfection in ourselves, so a lot of self-criticism, that there's that one thing that we did that was uh, uh, irrevocably bad, that terrible mistake that we made, the thing that maybe people keep reminding us <laughs> uh, should be considered to be unforgivable. Just to, to bring that uh, suggestion into consciousness that there's no thing that we have done, no thing that that has been uh, done to us, nothing that has, that has happened around us that is completely unforgivable. Similarly, the, the Buddha's uh, cousin, Devadatta, who during the Buddha's lifetime made several attempts on the Buddha's life, tried to kill him several times over, caused a schism, a division in the Sangha deliberately. Incredible amounts of bad karma. Uh, again, according to B- Buddhist mythology, even though uh, the, as the stories go that that uh, Devadatta was uh, uh, eventually his bad karma piled up to, to such a, uh, an, an enormous extent that the earth actually opened up and swallowed him <laughs> in a sheet of flame. That uh, uh, and then he sunk down into the the lower hell realms. It's said that in the f- in the future, in a future birth, he will be he will uh, be a Pacheka Buddha. That's a, a fully enlightened Buddha, but one who doesn't form uh, a Sangha of, of nuns and monks, but uh, a Pacheka Buddha in a future life. So even Devadatta, for all of the incredible harm and wrongdoing that he did uh, in, the, in the Buddha's lifetime, the incredible unskillfulness, still that uh, he had a lot of, of wholesome qualities as well. He had the good karma to be born in the same family as Gautama Buddha and to be so close. And that... Uh, there's a, at least according to the stories, that in the future he will um, indeed be fully enlightened and will be a Pacheka Buddha. So again, this is a, a helpful symbol to us. So even if your mind at this moment might be thinking, yeah, but you don't know what I did. <laughs> you know, I really, I really should be punished. I really don't deserve ever to be happy. You know, you, know, you, might, you might be able to explain it away, but, but I know. <laughs> so I would like to encourage a little doubt <laughs> A suspicion that that maybe that judgment is is uh, is faulty, and that perhaps there's a possibility that even the most ghastly wrongdoing, the most terrible mistake, the harm that we've done, uh, is forgivable. There was a, a very poignant dialogue I had with someone earlier this year who um, was uh, she was she took her her uh, her children and. Um, some of her nieces and nephews to the seaside uh, one day, and she was looking after these the, the children. And uh, one of her nieces um, got into got into trouble in the the seaside. Got got into trouble in the sea, and uh, she didn't realize that the, her niece was, was struggling, and she drowned. And so this incident, a ten-year-old niece uh, drowning, and it was she was responsible. She was the responsible adult there, and she wasn't paying attention. It was her responsibility. It was her her fault, and how that has sat with her and stayed with her, uh, and has been the sort of dominant painful presence in her days uh, ever since that had happened twenty years before. And so she carried that around with her, uh, and uh, was. Um, say haunted by that that feeling of, of responsibility and sadness, the grief at the the, the loss of, of her niece, and so it, talking with her in these in these terms and how part of her mind could say, you know, I can't be forgiven, I can't be forgiven, you know, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault, it's my fault, and so in this respect, it's how, it's important to recognize, yes, we do have those feelings of regret. But that's not all and everything that we are. Just like Jimmy Boyle had been responsible for uh, a lot of violence and destruction and, and pain in the way that he lived. But that's not all and everything. That's not the whole story. It's not all of what we are. And that you're not, uh, we're not necessarily brushing aside the harm that's been done. We're not pretending it's not there. But we're also not creating self-view around that, not making that into an identity. But seeing, yes, that was an unskillful action, that was harm was done, but 
we can recognize the transgression, we can recognize the harm and acknowledge it as such and then move on from there. Well, another story that, that comes to mind is slightly less um, painful and, uh, and poignant was um, uh, an encounter between, uh, uh, it was described to me by a friend of mine who's a, a Dhamma teacher in, in the USA, in, in California, uh, uh, Julie Wester. And this was an incident that occurred when her daughter was about four years old and um, her, her daughter Sophie was a very, very um, a sweet and gentle little girl. And um, one day Julie was uh, sort of tidying up in the living room and she noticed that this, this little glass horse that, that sat on the windowsill was missing. And, oh, and, and you know, Sophie, being a little girl, would kind of often play with the various things around the house. And, and so Julie said, Sophie, um, what, what happened to the, the little glass horse that sits on the windowsill? I don't know. This froze in this blanched look of terror on her face. And Julie, being very astute, hmm, um, shall, we, shall we try that again? <laughs> <laughs> so why don't, why don't you go out of the room, Sophie, and then come in and I'll try asking that question again. How about that? Okay! <laughs> so then, <laughs> well, this is, I thought this was extremely skillful, a way to... to uh, Help, uh, help her daughter and so Sophie went out and then uh, she came back in again and, and Julie said Sophie, uh, what happened to that little glass horse that sits on the windowsill? I broke it! <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Oh, well that's a shame that was a sweet thing but um, I wonder where the pieces are maybe we can stick it back together in Oh, do you think so? <laughs> And so they went, she went and got the, the pieces of the, the broken glass that uh, Sophie had tried to hide away. <laughs> and, uh, and then they made it into this little task together to try and get some glue and to you know, take the various pieces and figure out what went where and, and stick the horse back together again. I thought that was tremendously skillful rather than saying, you shouldn't lie to me, Sophie. You know, I know you broke it now. You should be a good girl. Because uh, she could see that she was very regretful and uh, also that there she was in telling a lie to, to her mother. But rather than scolding her for breaking that, the, the, the ornament or scolding her for, for not telling the truth, I thought that was so helpful just to say, well, let's just rewind here. <laughs> let's, just <laughs> let's just go back and, and, and try that again. And that... Um, that was, uh, I thought, a, a very uh, wise and a helpful way to uh, to relate because it certainly recognized there was some something that was done that was harmful, but yet there's a, a way to to recognize. Well, it was a it was a mistake. Uh, there, it was an accident. There's no need to create more difficulty and pain out of it. So, in our world, there's there's many. Uh, uh, ways that we can we can deal with with wrongdoing and harm something like that I thought was extremely skillful on a more uh, grand scale um, one of the most powerful examples in recent times well not that recent now but in the last 10-15 years was in South Africa after the ending of apartheid the um, what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was founded um, by the uh, the, the post apartheid government, Nelson Mandela and the, the South African government, actually bringing uh, in people who had been um, responsible for extremely you know, harmful and destructive acts, people in the security services, people in the, in the police and the army and the, in, the, in the governmental world and, and uh, in all different dimensions, and, or people who'd taken revenge for, for harmful acts done and so forth, and bringing people into the, the commission and talking through the acts that had been done, what had been done, and and accounting for the the feelings, the motivation behind it, and what was what was there. And, and I haven't read a huge number of accounts of that, but the um, understandably there were some very very intense exchanges. Similarly, they'd done uh, work of a comparable nature in Ireland as well, in, in, with the the struggles in 
in uh, Belfast and, and Northern Ireland, and uh, there are some pretty painful and, uh, and intense exchanges. But the, the, the overall result of that effort has been extraordinarily helpful. And I think for many people could never believe that South Africa could change over from a sort of the, the white apartheid government to a, a, a democratically elected um, governmental form uh, involving the you know, African people, black African uh, community, without there being a huge uh, amount of... Uh, uh, military conflict and, and uh, bloodshed. And I felt that the, the Truth and Re- Reconciliation Commission in particular, that very effort to acknowledge the harm that was done, to bring it out into the open, and to be able to recognize, yes, you know, what I did was, was harmful, what I did was destructive, but uh, please forgive me. And similarly, uh, you know, on, the, on both sides, of not just for the white people, for the black community as well, to recognize what was unskillful that was done, to recognize that and to ask for forgiveness. And uh, obviously there's many, many difficulties and struggles in South Africa uh, still today, but the, uh, the very effort that was made in that uh, is very, uh, a very powerful and public example of how we can forgive and how we can acknowledge our own wrongdoings, our own shortcomings, and have a, a quality of humility. Yes, I did wrong. Yes, uh, I ask for forgiveness. So that that very um, action of recognizing our our failings, our wrongdoings, and asking for forgiveness is a a, a very in a way central Buddhist tradition, particularly. Uh, when we've spent time together, say at the end of a, the rains retreat, there's a formal asking for forgiveness. If you've been on retreat together, or we spent time together with a with a group of people or with a particular teacher, when you part company, this is one of our customs, is to formally ask for forgiveness. That's how we kind of say goodbye to each other. <laughs> uh, is uh, you uh, you perform this little ceremony. Uh, and the the Pali uh, you recite Acharya Pramadena Dvarata Yena Katang Sapang Aparatang Kamatame Pante. For whatever I have done that's heedless, uh, and it's saying by body, speech, or mind, whatever I've done um, intentionally or unintentionally that might have been harmful to you or upsetting or distressing in any way, uh, you know, you, you try to cover all your bases. You know, even even if it's not all there in the text of it. You know, there's, there's a formula that you recite, but the intention is whatever I might have done, whatever I might have said, or, or the way I walk, <laughs> uh, whether it was intentional or unintentional, conscious or uncon- you know, un- unconscious, you know, whatever, whatever I might have done that was upsetting to you, uh, accordingly I ask for your forgiveness. And then one of the most beautiful aspects of this is then that the teacher or the, the person that you, you're addressing, the elder, then says, I forgive you and please forgive me also. And that's done even if the person that you're, even if you're an extremely sort of junior person or you're a, you know, a, a, a very young in the training and the person that you're talking to is someone who's extremely senior or regarded as a fully enlightened being, they will still say, I forgive you and please forgive me also. I ask you to forgive me also. And so that uh, even, again, that even though it can be somewhat formalized, ritualized, that it's just a... Um, uh, in a way, it can be seen as a, a rote exchange, just uh, a formula. Uh, it's what my own teachers, uh, Lumpur, Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumato, would always stress was that it's important that you mean it. <laughs> and it's also important that the teacher means it, because what you're doing is that even the teacher, even if they're an arahant, they're recognizing, well, even arahants can annoy people. You know, even the, right there in the in the in the suttas uh, in the, and in the the vinaya texts, there are actually several of our party uh, the rules of our discipline are laid down by the 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 uh, uh, misguided actions of some enlightened beings. That the Buddha had to scold quite publicly. It, uh, they're saying that uh, even enlightened <laughs> beings can can do things that annoy others, like a uh, a particular incident where. The, the great Arahant Pindala Bharadvaja, who had, like Mahamogalani, had great psychic powers. And uh, one day, the, um, a, a rich merchant 
in Rajagaha had um, had uh, set up a hundred foot pole and put on top of it this beautiful uh, sandalwood bowl and said, okay, whatever yogi or sannyasin or, or anyone blessed with with psychic powers can can rise up and, and take uh, and, and pick the bowl off the the uh, the top of this hundred foot pole, then they can keep it and they can make it their 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 own. This you know, very precious object. And so there was this big commotion happening in the marketplace and all this activity. And I think it was actually Mahamogalana was walking with Pindala Bharadvaja and they're walking along and they say, what's that whole commotion going on there in the market? And someone said, oh, well, this rich merchants put this beautiful sandalwood bowl on top of a hundred foot pole and anyone who can rise up and, and pick it off the pole can keep it. Oh, Pindala says, well, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so he floats up into the air Takes the takes the sandalwood bowl, does three laps of Rajagaha, and then flies back to the bamboo grove. Of course, that caused a bit of a commotion, <laughs> and uh, you know all these people start crowding into the monastery and making a big uh, uh, kerfuffle. And so then the uh, the Buddha said, "What what are all these people doing here? What's all this commotion? What's all this activity?" And then he hears that uh, that uh, Pindala had flown up in the air and, and been displaying his psychic powers in public, and he says, "Ask Pindala to come here." <laughs> You know, so he's an arahant, and then the and then the Buddha you know, brings him forth and gives him a good uh, scolding uh, in no uncertain terms, and uh, <coughs> he says, um, you know, that uh, from now on it's, it should be considered an offence for someone to display their psychic powers in in public. This is not something that you should be doing, to, like a like you're kind of on stage in a sh- you know like you're performing uh, like a a dancer on stage, you know, showing your uh, showing off a, 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 your kind of abilities like a, like a, street, a street performer. So even arahants can cause upset. <laughs> so in this asking for forgiveness, uh, what we're doing is, say, uh, recognizing that, that we affect each other. We have a, an impact upon each other. And that we are, even though we might have very good intentions, we might have a... Um, uh, uh, a, a quality of conduct that we feel is absolutely harmonious and pure, it can still be the fact that, that we annoy other people. Even maybe our goodness is really irritating. <laughs> that we do everything so well can be extremely upsetting <laughs> to other people. And so this is a, a very beautiful way of clearing the slate. When you part company, uh, of clearing the slate and recognizing that even with the best of intentions, we can annoy each other. And one of the, the, the uh, powerful aspects and helpful aspects of this is even if you don't really mean it, even if there's something in you says, well, you, know, <laughs> you really are out of order and I don't, you know, I, I don't really want to be doing this, just the very fact that you're hanging on to that, that attitude, that gets revealed at the moment where you put your hands together and say, uh, please forgive me and I forgive you also. The very fact that something in you wants to keep hold of it and doesn't want to, <laughs> to loosen the grip. At that moment, as you're, as you're reciting those words, um, then you notice that. You recognize, oh, there's something here that doesn't want to let go. There's something here that doesn't want to forgive. Now, what's that? Why is that so precious? Why, why do I want to carry that like a you know, red-hot iron ball? Why do I want to carry this around? This is only harming me. It's only you know, harming the other. So why would I want to do this to myself? So even though it might be uh, formulaic in some ways, it, it's like holding up a mirror to our own attitudes, our own uh, kind of narrow-mindedness, our own uh, quality of um, yeah, so self-cherishing in a way, that my view, my, my precious grudge <laughs> is more important than my respect for you as a living being who can make mistakes. And uh, that's difficult for us to see, but if we are able to, to recognize that, to, to acknowledge that, then we know that the thing to do next is to, to see that's a, a weakness on our part and to, to let go, to, to be humble enough to, to let that grudge dissolve. Now sometimes the, um, that kind of insolubility 
you know, when there, when you, there's something that is in a way our, our um, we've been carrying around for so long, or it's some situation that's so intractable or difficult that you really can't come to an agreement. You really can't settle it. And uh, the uh, the Buddha had a, a variety of ways that he he presented for disputes and conflicts and difficulties in the community to get. Um, sorted out you can uh, ideally we do things by make decisions by consensus and you come to a full agreement like that if you can't do things by consensus you go to a majority vote um, anyway there's, there's various different ways of, of settling disputes and, and discord but the and, and there's a, a list of seven of them that we we recite with the uh, the rules of training every fortnight and the last one is called covering over with grass and and this means there's no way we're going to agree on this. <laughs> you think A, I think B. You're, you're sure you're right. I'm sure I'm right. Well, okay. <laughs> just, let's just uh, cover it over with grass and carry on. And that uh, it's like, okay, well, well, we'll have to agree to disagree. And I, I've always felt that was a particularly... Uh, the Buddha was an amazing judge of human nature. He was extremely observant and a, a very, very uh, astute judge of character and observer of human nature and he realized that sometimes you just can't you can't agree but you can that's still not an obstruction to carrying on we still live together we're still related to each other you can uh, find a way forward even though there are some irreconcilable differences say within a, a within the family within a community within the uh say the catholics and the protestants in belfast or the the uh uh, the white community or the black community in South Africa or, or whatever it might be, uh, wherever it might be, that still we can cover things over with grass. And a few years ago I came across a similar tradition in in Hawaii. Um, and they have this particular, when, the, when you have some conflict within the village, within the, the community, that again is completely intractable. Like there's, there's, there's two factions that are opposed to each other. And you've been back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you can't come to any kind of settled agreement. There's this kind of community action that's called ho'oponopono. I'm sure that's badly pronounced. <laughs> but ho'oponopono. And what they do is they all, the, whole, the whole tribe, the whole village gathers together and, the, and they all agree, okay, this is impossible, right? This is completely impossible, but here we are. <laughs> And then they all agree, okay, this is a ho'oponopono. <laughs> this is what it is. <laughs> okay, we all agree this is impossible, this is completely, you know, uh, we're unable to work this out. Okay, it's one of those. And here we are. And then they carry on. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure there's more to it than that, but I thought this is, bears a striking resemblance to the, co the covering over with grass and the um, recognition of, yes, yeah, sometimes there are a, a deeply uh, the rifts and the disagreements the different ways of seeing, seeing things are, are so deep but there is this capacity to recognize a bigger picture there's something that's more important than my rightness or your rightness or, or the wrongs that have been done and that to allow us the space to, to respect each other and carry on is, is the most important thing Another of the aspects of, of forgiveness that uh, as a, uh, I'd like to, to touch on is, um, so, uh, say, for example, the, um, the monastery where I was living in California was called Abhayagiri. And in Pali, the, this means fearless mountain. A is the negative, Bhaya is fear, Giri is mountain. So literally it translates as fearless mountain. Now, for many Thai people, when they'd see the name um, Apaikiri, they think, oh, this means forgiveness mountain. Because uh, in, in the Thai language, Apai means forgiveness. And so when, when Thai people would come and they say, why did you call your newsletter Fearless Mountain? <laughs> what, what's what's, what's the, the, the name got to do with fearlessness? And he said, well, actually, that's Abhaya means fearless. They go, Really? Because in, uh, in the Thai language, um, the, there's a, a, a slight drift of meaning. But it's not that far from the original. Because to, um, uh, 
To forgive, when you don't carry a grudge around, no one needs to be afraid of you. Right? And one of the qualities of dana or generosity that the Buddha described, along with amisa dana, the, the giving of material uh, gifts, uh, another level or uh, of superior level of generosity of dana is abhaya dana, to the, the uh, to give fearlessness or to give freedom from fear, so that uh, and often that's associated with keeping sila, keeping the, uh, the, the precepts. So that if you are one who is dedicated to honesty, to non-violence, then other beings don't need to be afraid of you. Like in a monastery you find the, you know, the rabbits and the, the, uh, the deer and such like, they, they kind of roam around quite freely because they know the humans are not going to harm them. So that uh, uh, the quality of, uh, of abhaya, uh, of fearlessness, is, cl- is in, in that sense related to the quality of forgiveness. Because if you are always ready to forgive others, you're not carrying around resentment, you're not carrying around any kind of grudge, you're not carrying around that kind of negativity, no one needs to be afraid of you. Right? <laughs> and so that it, uh, uh, the abhaya of, um, uh, of uh, abhaya giri, then it is, uh, it's demonstrating, or, or it carries that, that same kind of meaning. And so forgiveness... Uh, is a, is not just something that um, say we are benefiting from ourselves. It's not just freeing our own heart from a burden of negativity or resentment or or the or the desire for revenge, but it's also a gift to others. It's a you're offering fearlessness. You're offering a freedom from from fear. And when people <laughs> know that you haven't got anything against them, you know sometimes they can. Th- they can be, you know, uh, uh, afraid of us if if they uh, people feel that they've um, they've done something worthy of criticism, or that that um, we're going to blame them for some kind of uh, harmful action or negative action. That uh, uh, to be able to say to someone, "No, I, I have no negativity towards you. I, I don't. I'm not carrying any resentment. I, I really don't mind. I have no ill will towards you." <laughs> really, <laughs> part of us can't believe it. But uh, it's uh, but when when uh, when you've had that kind of experience, I'm sure all of us, uh, most of us, at some point have have had that kind of encounter. And when someone realizes they really don't need to be worried about you or, or to be uh, uh, feel threatened by you, there's a, a tremendous a relief and a happiness. Uh, another story I read about recently, which I was very struck by, was um, I think it was in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books. I read it. Uh, who wrote uh, The Tipping Point and Blink. I think it, this might have been in Blink, I'm not sure. But he described how um, in, a, in the USA a man had been uh, wrongly identified uh, by uh, a, uh, a woman who'd been attacked, uh, a victim of an, uh, of an attack. And she'd wrongly identified this man in, in an um, identity parade. And um, he was uh, in jail for 20 years. He had 20 years in jail. And even when the actual, uh, uh, after there was some, some uh, doubt about whether the, the, uh, the right person had been identified, and the, when the, the, the woman was uh, confronted with the, the actual attacker, she said, no, 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 that's not him, it was the other guy. I remember, it was definitely him. And it, in the book it was also about the, the frailty, the, the subjectivity of perceptions. But after 20 years, uh, further evidence appeared and, and uh, it became clear that she had been mistaken to her amazement, that uh, she had been uh, mistaken and that uh, the wrong man had been jailed for 20 years. When he was released, then she, with I- incredible um, anxiety and, and uh, trepidation, went to him and apologized and said, I'm terribly sorry, I really, you know, I made a, a genuine mistake. And to her, to her astonishment, he had no uh, negativity towards her. He said, you know, we all make mistakes. He's an, obviously an amazing person. <laughs> he said, hey, we all make mistakes, you know. He said, but you've lost 20 years of your life, your entire youth was spent in the jail. He said, well, you know, you didn't mean it. So I, you know, I, I hold nothing against you. And they had this wonderful encounter and uh, they became firm friends, and they now travel around doing workshops. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, I, I wish I could remember the, the name, their names, but uh, they now travel around doing workshops on reconciliation, 
and uh, sort of restorative justice, <laughs> and that uh, uh, and telling their story, and also what what she has gained by his uh, 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 lack of negativity, his generosity towards forgiving her, and uh, the um, the his capacity to to not resent having been. Uh, subjected to the system because of being a, a he was a, a black American and she was, a, and, and therefore far more likely to be jailed than than, you know, than a white person. But he was uh, his freedom from resentment and, and then the the um, beneficial relationship that's come from that is something that they uh, they carry on uh, using that as a as a gift to the society. Well, the last thing I'd like to, to say, just uh, with, uh, as a closing piece, is how when we, um, when we think about forgiveness, you might feel that once we've forgiven someone, uh, or we've forgiven ourselves, that you come back to some kind of neutral point. Um, but there's, there's another dimension to it as well, whereby um, when we... Uh, say, let go of a sense of negativity. It's not just coming back to a, a neutrality, but there's also powerful uh, positive forces that come through as well, like for that woman, her experience of gratitude, uh, uh, amazement and gratitude to this, this uh, wonderful man who'd been locked up for so long on, on her wrong evidence. And how um, what can come forth uh, is a, a great uh, brightness of heart when, uh, when say, say for example, we can have a lot of resentment towards uh, people who've harmed us, or say our family members, or um, people who have uh, oppressed us in some way, or we feel that. And then um, when we uh, develop a quality of, of, of forgiveness and letting go of that resentment, then what that opens us up to is a, a quality of compassion. That even if someone really has done us harm or we've experienced a lot of pain, just to, to recognize what a terrible state they must have been in in order to have carried out those actions. You know, poor guy. What a, what, what a state to have been in. How, how miserable a condition to live in, to have acted in that way. And then we can experience a genuine quality of compassion. Like, uh, uh, I speak of this particularly because of the negativity I used to have towards my father as a teenager. When I, when I was a teenager, we had a lot of <laughs> very intense differences of opinion, like screaming arguments. And well, I was doing the screaming, and <laughs> it was. Uh, and I used to write him off as this sort of narrow-minded, bigoted. I mean, he was pretty racist and and kind of narrow and <laughs> conservative, and so on and so forth. And I carried around this, this, uh, uh, this terrible negativity and, and criticism of him, blaming him. And then uh, it, was, it was interesting how it was when I got to the age he was when, uh, when, I was, when he married my mother and then when, when I was born, that I started to get into my late 30s and early 40s, I began to, in a way, see myself in his shoes. And I started to get this, rec this, this feeling of, well, why on earth should he have known what to do as a parent? <laughs> you know, he didn't get any instruction manual. He went to Edwardian, uh, growing up in an Edwardian family, going to a, a ghastly boarding school, you know, all boys boarding school. How should he have had any knowledge whatsoever of how to, to look after to children or bring up a family? Why should I expect him to be so completely loving and understanding? His father was born in 1863. My grandfather was born in 1863. My father was born in 1913. He lived in a totally different universe to me, born in 1956 and growing up in the 60s. How on earth could he have <laughs> empathized with a flower child? <laughs> really? You know, and I began to see that... Uh, what, and what was coming forth after, uh, you know, on the other side of the, of the forgiveness was an enormous brightness of com compassion. I thought, well, he did a really great job. You know, well done, Dad. <laughs> and part of me could, was, was thinking, I can't believe I'm thinking this. <laughs> because it bore such a striking contrast to what had been there before. But I, I, it's uh, uh, something that I, I, uh, I found a great beauty in is, uh 
there, along with, with forgiveness, is a real um, cherishing and, and rejoicing, a real quality of appreciation. The, the brightness of gratitude, of compassion and appreciation that, uh, that we have for other beings, even those who we felt have done us harm or done us wrong, that we can, uh, it can bring forth you know, great uh, joy and, and a uh, delight, a brightness within us. So, speaking of joys and delights, uh, <laughs> the, the compassionate uh, tea makers have been busy at work, so we'll uh, finish with the uh, opening reflections there, and we'll have a, a little pause for tea for 20 minutes or so, and then gather again about uh, 25 past. <laughs> 